Well, good morning, Hayden Bible Church. I know you're here because you don't like camping in the rain, so we can rejoice together in that. It's an occasion for fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing it is for the saints to come together uh, in this place, Lord, today. Thank you as well for the shower of grace uh, as we uh, remember this weekend our um, fallen heroes, Lord, in this country. What a blessing it is from you uh, that you've uh, blessed us with living here. And Lord, today we pray uh, as we meet and gather and and sing and and we consider the word, Lord, that uh, you're blessed by it, that it pleases you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the one that teaches, that you would bring your word to life. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You know, on our uh, recent trip to Israel, we were given the opportunity to go and hang out for a while at uh, the Western Wall, uh, is what it's called, or some call it the Wailing Wall. It was a, a real surreal place to be. Uh, I, don't, I had only seen pictures of it before, obviously, like, like most of us. And uh, so this panorama was just kind of standing in the middle of the of it, and uh, as we were standing there, um, I was on the man side, and then they have a little fence, and then there's a woman side that Carlina was over on that side, and we were surrounded by I was surrounded by Orthodox Jewish men. Some seemed like they were chanting, others kind of seemed like they were um, singing almost, and and others almost seemed like they were crying a little bit as they were kind of rocking back and forth at the wall. Uh, I got a little video of it here at the Wailing Wall. Why don't we take a look at that, guys? what it uh, feels like to stand there a little bit uh, more than only a picture. One of the people that were standing there asked what they were doing. Um, He said that they were, he was praying the Psalms. He had his Psalm book open. There's another photo of his Psalm book, kind of beautiful Hebrew, just a little book only of the Psalms. Like I said, it was surreal standing here. And, And in case you didn't know this, the Western wall is the Western base of this larger platform that King Herod built that surrounded the second temple. So really the second temple itself was away from the Western wall. And so he built these kind of, Herod was kind of a developer. And so he uh, built this larger platform and, and the edge of that platform down kind of the Western face is where we're talking about when we, you see the Western wall. And so, um, it's, it's the, it's the closest original touchable place where worshipers can get to be near the former temple's holy of holies. And so it's as close as you can get to what used to stand there in a sense. And so in the mind of a modern day Jew, the Western wall is about as close as you can get to the presence of God. As I stood there, scripture from John 4 just flooded in my swirling around in my mind. And and as I watched these committed men wailing, 
lamenting and, and praying over their lost temple on this sacred mountain, it was like I could almost hear the words of Jesus spoken in my mind. In John 4, Jesus was speaking, as you remember, to this woman at a well. He was standing in Samaria, and he said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Like the men at the wailing wall, the woman in John 4 had a mindset that couldn't yet see what was really going on. And remember what she said when Jesus mentioned living water? She said, where's your bucket? She couldn't understand yet. She couldn't really perceive that he was using water as a sort of metaphor, just like the Old Testament does in many places, a metaphor as imagery for the, for the born-again spiritual life of a believer, the, the transforming power of God, the, and new life based on the true knowledge of God, based on his word, where your word, his word comes bubbling out of you. So to put it in biblical terms, she was still operating on the level of copy and shadow instead of the reality that was standing right in front of her in the person of Christ. I want to pause for a second and just really clarify what I mean by, or what the scripture I believe means by copy and shadow. When you see your shadow, like I can see mine right here, that's not me, just so you know. That's just a shadow. I'm the reality that's my shadow. And so um, it's, it's, uh, the shadow is only really a loose form of me here, uh, but it's only a silhouette. You can't see my definition. And besides that, shadows are really only 2D. You can't even see in 3D. It's just a shadow. Or even with a copy. If we, you look at that photo and you see a picture of the wailing wall, you can see some details and some activities, but you can't touch or hear what's going on, although you can a bit with a video, but, but the photo and the video aren't the thing. They're only a copy of the thing. Just like your shadow isn't the reality, it's just your silhouette. So for the woman at the well, the, the literal water in the well was only kind of a copy or shadow of the true water, the water of life that Jesus was offering her. In fact, even further, when she was asking about the mountain where Jesus thought it was best to worship, the literal place Jesus answered in a way that would have been really surprising because in her economy as a Samaritan, as well as in the economy of the old Mosaic covenant, she was thinking in terms in her mind of copy and shadow, not the real thing in the Holy Spirit of, of Christ. Again, from our... Uh, Thinking back to John 4, Jesus uh, told her that it wasn't in Jerusalem, uh, but it was in some other way. Under the old covenant, it was appropriate and ordained by God that, that worship happened on that mountain in Jerusalem. 
But it turns out that that type of worship and, and that type of temple with those types of sacrifices, helping them gain limited access into the presence of God, which really wasn't their access anyway, because the high priest is the one that went in to the Holy of Holies. But that ultimately all only served as imagery for the reality that's under the new covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus said, not on this mountain, nor on the one in Jerusalem, with these guys at the wailing wall, but another way. I want you to hear this morning the biblical truth that location tied to the Mosaic system only served as imagery, copy and shadow of the true thing that was coming. True worship is in the reality of the Holy Spirit of God. The true temple, Jesus Christ, the copy was destroyed. The reality um, was the thing that was coming that was raised up in three days after he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And, and the true temple, the true temple of scripture is a temple made of living stones, him being the chief cornerstone. And each stone, in a sense, is a temple in and of itself because you and I are temples of the living God. The, the earthly temple, in a sense, pointed to what we have so back to our devoted men standing at this wailing wall. They're actually standing as close as they could possibly get to what was only a copy or a silhouette. It's like they're standing as close as they could get to the shadow. In a sense, they're wailing at the wailing wall because they can't touch the photo, i.e. the temple on the Temple Mount. And, and, but as we know, the photo was only a rendition of what was real in the Holy Spirit in Christ. This is key to our understanding of Christianity, and it's key to our understanding of the whole Bible. By the way, Hebrews teaches all about this, and it would be a good idea for you to study Hebrews for quite a while. And also Romans, too. That's another good one. The system of Worship and the Mosaic Covenant, the same covenant that was passing away in those days. The law, in that sense, was only a shadow of the good things to come. Again, by the Holy Spirit in Christ. Again, from our text this morning, I wanted to just focus just for a minute on Hebrews 10, verse 1. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The church redeemed by the finished work of Christ is the very form of things. We're a spiritual entity with heavenly origin and heavenly citizenship, yet we're alive and well on this earth. The temple on the Temple Mountain, Jerusalem, in the tabernacle in Moses' day was constructed after a pattern of something heavenly. They were earthly copies, not the reality. It turns out, guys, that the Old Testament, literally the Old Covenant, was packed with imagery like this, all pointing directly to Christ and his kingdom. Like Hebrews 10 says in another place, the son speaking to the father, the son says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. 
I'd like to bring in a few other passages of scripture this morning to lay an even broader foundation and also share some more cool pictures with you of Israel. Go to Genesis 22. You'll remember this is the account of uh, Abraham being told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from a distance and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. Then Abraham took the burnt off, wood of the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. And then Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God would provide a substitute to stand in Isaac's place. And in the land of Moriah, traditionally thought to be on Mount Moriah itself, God was testing Abraham's faith to to believe his promise above all other circumstances. In Genesis 15, God had said to him, he said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. God had promised Abraham that he would be the blessing to all the nations and his seed would be the avenue of that blessing. Another passage from Hebrews tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son to whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. He, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. Received him back in the sense that Isaac was resurrected, so to speak, that day. He was as good as dead, like the rest of us. Yet Abraham knew, as he told Isaac, that God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Not only did God provide a substitute for Isaac that day, a ram caught in a thicket, the text says, but about 2,000 years later, God provided for himself a greater substitute. Abraham's seed had finally come, the lamb of God, the real substitute for Isaac that the former one, the copy, only pointed to. This lamb stood on this same mountain where Abraham lifted his knife up above Isaac. This same Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, the place today of of the Wailing Wall, is the same place where the seed of Abraham, the lamb God provided as Passover was approaching, said, destroy this sanctuary, this temple, this place of the presence of God, and in three days I will raise it up. 
guys, listen on behalf of these guys at the wailing wall. Abraham, the father, Isaac, the son who was to be sacrificed, and, and the lamb God would provide all point to something greater. It's, it's not a stretch to see the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world standing in our place. In, in a sense, we're all Isaacs, so to speak. Guilty of sin, guilty under the law, condemned as sons and daughters of Adam, but rescued by faith in the free gift of the lamb that he provided. These things happen literally on on Mount Moriah, but serve as a copy or, or shadow of the real things that God was really pointing to as he intended to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven, the scripture says, and things on earth. In chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 9, the text continues. It says, Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there, and arranged wood and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. Mount Moriah was an altar, a place of sacrifice bringing salvation. Even later under the Mosaic Covenant, it was still an altar. And for us, in a sense, like Isaac, who was a copy, we're as good as dead in Adam. And through repentance and faith, we're received back, in a sense, like Isaac. Even Jesus says in John 11, like with Isaac, the lamb says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. When we believe, Ephesians says, we're brought from death to life. We receive a heavenly citizenship. Guys, the, like Paul says in Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. What a beautiful God we have. Continuing after... Abraham and Isaac in the, in the days after Egypt, even in the days of Moses, the, and, and God institute, instituted the covenant with his people, the Mosaic covenant. And Paul later explained that it was added to the Abra- promise to Abraham to give sin the character of transgression and, or lawbreaking, which really resulted in, in penalty under that law. So a, a system of sacrifice is kind of similar to the, the copy or shadow that was developed through Abraham and Isaac. The system of sacrifices that God ordained would be necessary to hold God's wrath at bay for lawbreakers. God instituted this law, the capital L, the Mosaic Covenant. And, and in Galatians 3, Paul says to shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, the lamb that God would provide, the real one, might be given to those who believe. You might remember after Moses of the Mosaic Covenant died on Mount Nebo. By the way, we have a picture of Mount Nebo in case you're interested. It's the higher point on the right, I understand at least. Um, Joshua led the Israelites into the land across the the western side of the Jordan. Um, By the way, we're heading to David, just so you know. 
Joshua led with victory after victory when they came into the land. They received city after city, cities with houses already built, uh, gardens already growing, uh, places, water, uh, everything that they needed was constructed and, and livable when they came into that land. But there was a particular city uh, in the occupied land called Jebus that was never taken. In around a thousand years, roughly after Abraham, the Israelites under the leadership of King David finally overtook and, and, and took Jebus. It's, it's called Jerusalem, by the way, this today. Jebus kind of sits on a slope or a ridge that comes off the south side of Mount Moriah. Uh, and sneaking through the Canaanite tunnel, which we have a picture of the Canaanite tunnel, if you're interested. Um, uh, the, at the lower end of that slope, David and his men overcame the defenses of the city and claimed it as the fortress of Zion. The city of David, is, and it's still called that today. Yahweh was with King David. Yahweh gave David the victories. David was a faithful king. He was a man after God's own heart. And, and even in Psalm 20, verse 7, he even wrote, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. Again, in Psalm 44, 6, he wrote, For I will not trust in my bow, and my sword will not save me. Yet near the end of David's life there, came this point in time that God was angry with Israel. And, and by a sovereign work of, of God through the evil of Satan, King David responded to that situation by taking a census of Israel and Judah. And it's really difficult to understand David's heart orientation, his motives, but God didn't like this. Maybe because instead of boasting in the name of Yahweh, maybe it was that David had a heart that turned away from the safety and security of his great God and, and really started to look at his own strength. It's kind of hard to say. But in judgment, God ended up bringing a, a, a deadly disease on Israel. And from, from Dan to Beersheba, from the extreme north of Israel, clear to the extreme south of Israel, uh, God killed 70,000 men all over that nation because of David's sin. In 2 Samuel 24, the angel of the Lord was about to destroy Jerusalem as well, and, but God relented and put mercy on David's city. And in 2 Samuel 24, the text says that the angel of Yahweh was by the threshing floor of Arana or Ornan, in some translations, the Jebusite. David knew he'd sinned, and he was pleading for a way to have God's wrath ended so people would quit dying. Then David spoke to Yahweh when he saw the angel who was striking down the people. He said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done unrighteousness, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, against, uh, please let your hand be against me and my father's house. Like the good shepherd who would come later, David, he cared for his sheep. He would lay down his life for his sheep. But unlike the good shepherd who would be later, he knew he was a sinner. 
in the midst of all this death and judgment, uh, uh, just by God's sovereignty, a prophet named Gad came and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up according to the word of Gad and, and just as Yahweh had commanded. Remember how David took the city of Jebus? And, and that Jebus is a city on the ridge coming off the south side of Mount Moriah. It turns out that Arana the Jebusite, Jebus, owned the top of the mountain and the rock on the top of the mountain was his threshing floor. What happens at a threshing floor, by the way? Anybody remember? Yeah, the, uh, in a lot of places, a threshing floor was kind of the high place of a community where wheat sheaves were brought. And, and, and the, the people who would bring the wheat sheaves were intending to separate the chaff from the wheat kernels by the wind blowing where it wishes. Here's a little bit more of a refined threshing floor in another place at Bet Shemesh, um, uh, about 12 or 13 miles west of Jerusalem. It's kind of the high place and where that, where that community at that time was, was at. Um, and then also, so the threshers would bring their crops up and, and use this type of winnowing fork. I think we have a picture of a winnowing fork there in case you're interested. They would throw the wheat and the chaff up in the air. The wind would blow the chaff away. And the wheat would be left so that you could make a good loaf of bread. Um, So here in Jebus, Jerusalem, the king bought the threshing floor from Arana and he built an altar there and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord there. And the text says that Yahweh was moved for by the entreaty for the land and the plague was checked from being upon Israel. God stopped it. Mount Moriah, the altar, the, again, the place of sacrifice, the place of salvation, the place of resurrection, in a sense, now owned by the king, was the place where David's son Solomon built the first temple. Second Chronicles 3 verse 1 says, Solomon built, uh, began to build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And the wonderful presence of our great God filled that place, that temple. And Israel had peace in the glorious presence of God. I wanted to share just a few more photos with you guys. Uh, this next photo is a comparison of the Temple Mount in Jesus' day, kind of a model on the left there, and then the Temple Mount today. And you can see that platform that I was talking about surrounding the temple, and there's the, the that would be the second temple, the Ezra and Nehemiah days temple, uh, clear up into the Herod times. And then on the one on the right is the same platform uh, with the Muslim Dome of the Rock sitting on it. Um, and then the next photo uh, is... Um, actually, the blocks at the base of the western wall, the, those blocks have kind of a signature groove that's been carved in around them. That was Herod's kind of signature that he wanted to have as his workers were building that uh, wall. And then uh, the next one is the, the actual Dome of the Rock. And this is the Muslim uh, place where they believe that their false prophet was ascended up into heaven. 
And then there's another photo of the interior of that that I didn't take. Uh, I got that. But that's the literal rock of the top of Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, uh, also the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite from Scripture that we just talked about. You know, thinking back to Solomon, and we, we've read our Bibles, haven't we? We know, beginning with Solomon and nearly every other king after him, the kings led the hearts of their people away from their God. They broke covenant with God. And as a result, just as he explained he would in Deuteronomy and other places, God brought judgment on them. He brought other nations against them. But they persevered in evil and prostituted themselves to other gods who aren't God. And eventually, finally, the glory of God left the temple. Just after God prophesies in Ezekiel of a new covenant that he's bringing, Ezekiel pictures for us his glory leaving the temple. In Ezekiel 11, verse 23, it says, The glory of God, excuse me, the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. What mountain's east of the city? Mount of Olives. The glory of God left the covenant breaking city and rested on the Mount of Olives. And this covenant age was going to come to an end. And, and God would bring judgment to the covenant breakers and at the same time salvation to the faithful. Later in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel prophesied of a later time when the glory would return. He says, then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face. And the glory of Yahweh came into the house by way of the gate facing toward the east. The glory of God would come back into the city from the east, from the Mount of Olives. And his voice would be like the sound of many waters. The, the woman at the well knew that voice, didn't she? Revelation even describes this, same, this glorious person in the same way. John says his voice was like the sound of many waters. The flood of the word of God. And then again in 2 Corinthians 4, the apostle Paul gives us more. He says, for light, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory or presence of God, instead of being in a temple made with hands, that a copy is now manifested in Jesus Christ, who is the reality. Amen. And just as prophesied in generations past, in, in Matthew 21, Jesus Christ, the glory of God himself, was standing on the Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday. And, and the glory himself, the one who was the reality, not the shadow, re-entered the city, cleansing his temple and declaring judgment on the breakers of the covenant. Remember, he cursed the fig tree. And he brought glorious salvation to the faithful through his new covenant cross. What a beautiful plan God had. This is the one thousand years after David that John the Baptist even cried out and said, he who is coming after me is mightier than I. 
And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with holy, the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the, he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. This mighty one brings with him salvation and judgment. What was at his threshing floor later? The temple. The center of the old covenant world, Mount Moriah. And because of the time, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, that covenant was ready to disappear, like Hebrews says. And in less than a generation, after he ascended to his throne, the temple was completely destroyed. The, te- the threshing floor was thoroughly cleared. The city was reduced to rubble, and the Holy Spirit was gathering wheat into his barn. And his kingdom has been growing ever since. Back to Hebrews 13.10, it reminds us that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no authority to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. No longer on a mountain in Jerusalem. Jesus says to the woman, not on this mountain or the one in Jerusalem. Thinking of Mount Moriah, the the temple mount, the earthly temple only served as a copy and shadow of the true temple. The earthly sacrifices as well only served as a copy and shadow of the one true sacrifice. And the earthly holy of holies only modeled the pattern from heaven, the place of citizenship of God's redeemed people. In fact, the earthly mountain only served as a copy and shadow of the real mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the the tabernacle and temple and priests and sacrifices all served as imagery. The Bible calls them copies and shadows of the true, real things that would come later that we now have in Christ. For for a, a time, the copies and shadows were the ministry of God. But after the cross, after the resurrection and victorious ascension, and when the ministry of the Spirit came in power... It literally came about that not on a mountain in Samaria, nor even on this mountain in Jerusalem, would people need to worship the Father. The earthly copies and shadows of these imminent or at-hand heavenly realities were no longer needed. Because the real thing they pointed to had finally come. With the wailing wall, a few weeks ago, these, these devout men committed they were serious they they're praying and and singing and and hoping desperately for the reconstruction of those copies and shadows with with veils over their hearts as paul would say they they want to merely touch the photo they want to look and try to search out the shadow instead of the real thing in jesus christ remember 
Even from Paul's words to the Corinthians, he writes and says, A natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. It's a ministry of the Spirit now. You and I this morning would be blessed to look closely at what these copies and shadows all over the land of Israel that we saw pointed to, and we need to rejoice in the reality of them that we have now under the new covenant in Christ's blood. Again, from 1 Corinthians 3, Paul asks and says, Do you not know that you, you are a sanctuary of, the, uh, of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. Amen. The reality has come. The cross was the altar. Christ himself is the temple that was raised up in three days. And in him, you and I are temples, places of the presence of God himself. And and as a church, we're growing up into a living holy of holies, a, a dwelling place of God in the spirit, the Bible says, a place of intimate, real, lasting koinonia with our great God. Instead of mortal men as workers in the tabernacle or temple, Hebrews says that we have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not men. The true tabernacle, not the copy, not the shadow. This, the devout men at this wailing wall Lamenting the loss of their way into the presence of God are trapped, groping for the rebuilding of their temple. But for the people who enter in by faith, the people of Israel's new covenant, the one that God promised them, the the same covenant that God has gracefully grafted you and I into as outsiders, we are the temple of the living God in Christ. His presence is our daily reality. Praise the Lord that we don't have to go to Jerusalem to have fellowship with God. It can happen in Idaho. (laughs) Thinking again of the chaff and the wheat and the wind at the threshing floor, Jesus says to the Nicodemus in John 3, he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. The the sovereign regeneration worked by God's Spirit, in a sense, is at least pictured in, in a way that wheat is separated off from the shaft at a threshing floor. It's beautiful imagery for what we have in our Savior. You know what, guys? It was surreal, like I said, standing at this place. In the flesh, touching and feeling, it seemed like a really spiritual place, a really place of true God spirituality. But it turns out that that place, and here's what I want us to understand this morning and really embrace, was only a copy and shadow of the reality that we have been handed by faith in Jesus Christ. This is a ministry of God's Holy Spirit. 
those things only serve to point to this. And as we're turning to communion time this morning, communion Sunday, it turns out, is a really good morning to really understand where you stand with God. Think about the testimony of your life. Examine yourself this morning. Are you one who is blown off the threshing floor to be kind of burned up in unquenchable fire? Are you possibly operating only merely in the realm of copy and shadow? Maybe touchable and tangible, so to speak? As devout as these men are, the men here at this wall, they, they, they have their minds set on the flesh. They, their hearts are set on the tangible copies and shadows of the real things that are heavenly, namely the Messiah. Scripture says that the mind set on the flesh is death, but, and, and also that those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. But if you're a believer and trusted in the once-for-all sacrifice and you have a high priest of a different order, not of the Mosaic temple, uh, but a high priest whose flesh was sacrificed as Isaac's lamb God provided and the, and the veil of the temple was completely torn in two from heaven clear down to the bottom on earth and, and, he who, and he's brought you out of, into that most holy place just by faith, by the work of Christ to have lasting fellowship with God. This turns out that the scripture says to you this morning that you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again the fear of God's wrath, but you, this morning, have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Are you washed clean this morning? Are you born of the spirit? If you have that confidence this morning, we invite you to remember his cross as our servers bring the bread and the cup. Let's sing this beautiful song to our Lord.
approach the table this morning. Let's just take a moment uh, to humble our hearts before him and give gratitude to him. The word says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Even though our bodies are washed, the truth is uh, our feet, so to speak, they still need daily cleansing, don't they? It's good for time for us to just bow before him and just for a moment here and just confess any sin that you haven't brought to him. He gladly washes it away. All right, let's bow. Father, we're grateful from the heart. It all points to your son. We're grateful that we had nothing to do with our salvation other than bringing our sin, but you gave mercy and grace to us at the cross. Lord, we pray today that you're blessed by our remembrance of this precious, precious work of our lamb that you provided. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Amen.